I've seen some of these studies, these lists of the greatest fears that people have. And, and there's different kinds of fears you can have. You know, there's global fears, war, economic breakdown, and, and, or political fears. But this is just, I'm talking about personal, individual fears. And at least in America, when, uh, when studies are done of that, there's almost always the same answer for the number one fear that people have in the United States. It's uh, public speaking. Like more than dying. And you may have heard the Jerry Seinfeld joke about this. He says, okay, so apparently in America, when we go to a funeral, we would rather be the person in the casket than the person giving the eulogy. And it's, you know, ironic to be talking to you about that right now uh, as I'm engaging in it. But, but you get it because there's just nothing like public speaking to just put you out there. Again, it's, it's, it's actually kind of horrible to describe it um, because you're just standing there and this is how I look. And this is how I sound. And maybe I'll sound interesting or maybe you'll think I'm boring. And so you just you feel naked and exposed. So there's that. And um, you may have talked with people before about your dreams. And I don't really engage in dream interpretation don't have the training for that, but, um, you know, when you, when you sit around and talk about dreams, there's sort of the classics that come up. One is where something's chasing you, and you're just moving in slow motion. Have you ever had that one? And, and apparently there's a physiological reason. Your body sort of shuts down so that you don't live out your dreams. <laughs> Good thing. And so when something's chasing you and you're trying to run, your body's not moving, and it manifests, it manifests itself as, as, you know, I just I can hardly move in my dream. That's a famous one. Uh, there's the classic where I'm in a, I'm in a play and I, and I never learned the lines. Or uh, I, I'm in school and I didn't drop the class. Or there's an exam and I'm not ready. Those are classics. But a truly global classic is, is the naked dream. And, and by the way, I'm, I told Jake before we started this morning, I'm making a concerted effort to pronounce it naked, not naked. I, because somebody at some point pointed out to me that like naked means un, uncovered, unclothed. Naked sounds like you're up to something. So <laughs> I'm trying to pronounce it as naked. But the, you know, the naked dream is that you just, you're just going about your life and you go to class or you go to work or you're walking down the street or you're in a store and just all of a sudden you realize you have no clothes on. And of course, rationally, you know, there is a 0.0% chance that could ever happen in real life. Just from the, just how it would feel to my skin, I would know not to do that, no matter how forgetful I am. But it's, uh, it's a universal dream. People all over the world have this dream. And, uh, and, and I would argue that it actually has, again, very ancient roots because it's this strange manifestation that I will be seen, I'll be exposed, and I'll be embarrassed, I'll be ashamed. I, 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 I don't want that feeling that I'm going to have. That, that is as ancient in our experience as, as anything. And I, and I always feel the need to say this when we talk about Adam and Eve, that this account of this man and this woman is never presented in Scripture as mythic. I mean, even, even the Hebrew 
uh, vocabulary and syntax and grammar it broadcast, this is historic narrative. This is an account of something that actually happened. So that's the way I'm treating it, as does Jesus, as do the apostles, that this is actually historic. And, you know, Moses, who, who writes these, these words, he goes out of his way, and I'm not trying to be funny, or, or, but he goes out of his way to tell us repeatedly that they don't have clothes. And Adam and Eve, you know, I mean, Moses could have just stated that about Adam and Eve. And he keeps letting us see that, that Adam and Eve originally, they had no clothes. So why is that important? So let's look at that. And I, and I, want, to, I want to think about it not just from the data like they didn't have clothes and then they did have clothes, but the experience of it. The experience of it. So let's think about, all right, the experience of no clothing and the experience of clothing. Those are my two points. The experience of no clothing, the experience of clothing. No clothing, all right? This is the end of chapter 2, and everything's great in the Bible through Genesis 1 and 2. So you get to the end of chapter 2, and really, this comes on the heels of the account of the creation of Eve and the account of the first marriage, and it's really beautiful. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in the way, when you've been to a wedding where you'll see a, a father, or if there's not a father, some man that's important to this family will uh, we'll give the bride away, but Eve doesn't have a dad. And in the account, uh, God makes Eve for Adam, and it says, and the Lord brought her to Adam, like, like a first dad. And it's, it's the first marriage, and there's no sin, there's no disconnection. It's really beautiful. And that, that Moses doesn't write it with chapters, but there's a pretty clear transition there. And right before the transition, he says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the obvious point is they don't have clothes. That's obvious. But what is Moses emphasizing? That they could stand there before one another with no shame. Now, what is shame? Here's how one one scholar, counselor, defines it. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. That sounds about right. Let me read it one more time. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something else associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. The obvious point is there are no clothes yet, but, but the, the more important point is Adam and Eve could stand there as the first husband and wife, however long that was, before sin entered the picture. And there are no regrets. There are no wounds. There's no baggage about the fight that we keep having over and over and over. There's no treachery. There's no memory of that time that you hurt me so deeply. There's no embarrassment about how I wish I had done more or accomplished more. It was cooler. There's no embarrassment about even their physical appearance. They just stand there, whole people, without shame. It's a beautiful picture. And then it changes. Chapter 3 is when things go south. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 7. You know, the command was, enjoy everything, enjoy all of it. 
Just don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and some of this is mysterious. God doesn't explain everything about it. But we can at least say this. Given that they live in paradise, in bliss, with absolutely no needs and the direct presence of God, the only reason that you would do this thing that God said not to do is just sheer disobedience. Just straight-up rebellion. So they do. And then chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, let's be careful about what does that mean, because I think from our point of view, when it says, wow, they, they disobeyed God, and their sensibilities changed, and all of a sudden they realized they were naked, that sounds to us like the thing that happens to you in the dream when you, when you look up. And you realize, I'm out in front of people and I don't have clothes on. That can't be what it means for them. And understand what I'm saying. It, like, a man walking down the street in the 1950s could not stop and go, Oh my goodness, I don't have a smartphone. There are no smartphones. There have never been any smartphones in the world. He can't think that. Adam and Eve cannot think to themselves, I'm not wearing clothes right now. There is no such thing. There is no cloth. There are no textile mills. What does it mean? It means that now they know what it is to stand in front of somebody with whom they experienced blissful connection. Adam and Eve had something in their initial relationship and their marriage, which was a taste of the Trinity, the joy and the connection and the unity that exists in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They had that at the human level, and all of a sudden they look at each other and they feel regret. And they feel embarrassment. And they don't feel good about their bodies. And so what do they do? And by the way, they do this before God shows up. They do this before God even shows up. All it takes is the presence of each other. They hide and cover. Now think about this. You know, um, if you've played with a little kid, or maybe you, uh, you've, 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 there's been a child you've taken care of, or you've had young children, you've seen them do this. We did this, but it was so young we don't remember doing it. But when a child will cover his or her eyes and think that now you can't see them, because everything's gone dark to you. This is sort of reassuring to me as I'm public speaking that I can't. I may do this the whole sermon. But they'll cover their eyes and it feels like you can't see me. So we laugh about it. Like, I mean, that's a really young child that they haven't even learned that I can still see you when you do that. Do you know that adults do this? Not, I don't, I'm not being metaphorical, literally. And here's what it, it looks like. And I've done it. I've caught myself doing it. And I've, I've sat across from others and seen this happen. Is someone is telling you something and it's so painful. It's so embarrassing and excruciating and personal. And they feel so vulnerable as they say it out loud that you'll close your eyes when you say it. I've had people sit in front of me and close their eyes for 10 or 15 minutes. And, and we, know, we, we know we're both there and we're grown-ups and everyone's clothed. And It's like I just need some buffer because it's so painful. That shame. 
and I've done it. That's deep. Uh, that's, that's what we're like. So let me ask you the question again. And maybe we can answer it with a little bit more candor. I'm not saying out loud, but just in your own heart. What was it like to walk from the car in here? Is it the feeling that you don't measure up and you're going to be found out? Uh, or or is, it, is it the feeling that these are the kind of people that God can smile at, but He's not smiling at me? Uh, when, when you walked in, were you thinking about the pornography that you've looked at? Or the words that you have said that would be, you feel like would shock everyone's sensibilities? Well, that's the feeling of being naked. Is that I am things and I've done things that if I were really known, everyone would run from me, even God. It's extremely ancient. And I don't say this to lessen the importance of it, but maybe just for the solidarity of understanding each other, it's actually normal. Just because it's normal doesn't make it good. It is normal, though. So that's the experience of no clothes. So then what about when clothing comes on the scene? When when does that happen? Let's go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, when we read this, you know, of course, we think, well, that, that's not going to work long term. You know, I, it makes me think of when I was little and be with friends and you make a fort in the woods. So maybe you get like big branches and you maybe you set them up like a teepee, kind of make a cone out of the big branches. And then you get uh, other branches with leaves or maybe some kind of tall grass or something. And you, you put that on there. And when they're fresh branches, it looks awesome. You know, it looks sturdy and like, wow, we've got walls to our fort. But when you come back to the fort in four or five days, it's all shriveled. That's not going to work. The leaves are dead. So you think about, wow, if I make coverings for myself with leaves, that, that's, hey, Adam and Eve, that's not going to cut it. And, and it's really not going to cut it because up to that point, just so you understand where we are in Genesis, the earth is friendly toward people. The earth works with you. The earth is not at odds with you. But the account is that when Adam and Eve sinned, the earth changed. And what you're going to have now is an earth that opposes you. So whether it's temperature or wind or just disease or the cruel realities of life, now you have to reckon with that as you live. A covering of leaves is not going to do it, right? So just pragmatically, that won't work. But that's not even the deeper issue. And practically, the the clothes they made for themselves won't work. But what's the deeper issue? Look at verse 10. Actually, look at verse 9. Uh, this, this is really something. Because God said, don't eat of this one tree. One tree. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And you don't even need to. They do. And so God would have had every right to show up in the garden and to just begin pronouncing judgments. What's the first thing we hear God saying when evil entered the world? Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
Does God ever ask a question to learn something? Does God ever ask a question to garner information? He is getting them to say the truth out loud. So what's the truth? Verse 10. He, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now think about this. Adam said, I heard you, and I was naked, and I was afraid. But based on the fact that verse 10 comes after verse 7, when he said he was naked, he was clothed. He made the covering of the leaves first, and then God shows up, and God says, where are you? And he says, I was afraid when I heard you because I'm, I'm naked when he's clothed. What does that tell you? The clothes that we make for ourselves will not cut it when God shows up. When we're looked on by God. Let me read you a verse from the New Testament. And this is from the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but listen to how it has the the language and the sound of Genesis 3 in it to talk about all our experience before God. This, This is about us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, meaning God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me read that again. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Even even when they covered however much of their body they covered, when God showed up, even in a posture of mercy, they feel uncovered. Their experience is, I'm naked and uncovered. I'm exposed. So what does God do about it? Oh, and by the way, just so that we bring this to the present moment. You know, it's easy to look at this and just kind of go, you can't cover yourself with leaves. You're not going to fool God by covering yourself up with leaves and then kill ourselves to cover ourselves with work. Wear ourselves out to cover ourselves with actually, how about even my clothes and my physical appearance? wear ourselves out to clothe myself with getting everybody to like me and getting everybody's approval. Those are leaves. They don't work. That's that's part of the bad news. It won't work. And and by the way, if you just kind of want some empirical proof of that, and I don't say this in any ha-ha-ha way, but it's very sobering, is that, you know, models... Supermodels, the people that are supposed to look the best with clothes on or not with clothes on. Addiction rates, suicide rates through the roof. So what does God do? Chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, when we read this, I feel like I'm fighting against the cumulative effect of every depiction you've ever seen of Adam and Eve. Because whether it's classical art in museums or picture story Bibles or Sunday school handouts, 
there's sort of two ways they're depicted. Before they sin, you can just kind of tell they're naked people standing behind plants. Strategically standing behind plants. And then, after they sin, they're usually, I don't want to be inappropriate here, but they're like wearing some kind of animal skin swimsuit. Or, or, or something like the Flintstones. And, uh, and, and Eve will look like she's like a cave woman from a 60s movie or something. Or like the old, you know, um, Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston girlfriend or something. The Hebrew word that's used here is a, is a word for a tunic. And so what God makes for them is actually something more like what a priest would wear. In fact, that Hebrew word is used for the priest's clothes. It would be something sleeved and either uh, to their knees or to their ankles of, uh, of skin and probably fur. And I, if I, it's actually made me wonder if in the Chronicles of Narnia, in that first story when the, the children go into the wardrobe and uh, the woods are cold, they, they take fur coats from the wardrobe and they put them on. And because they're children, they, they, they drape down and look almost like fur dresses. I've wondered if there's maybe a reason that's such a compelling image. Because that probably looks like our first parents as they're leaving the garden. So first off, at a very pragmatic level, God is being merciful. This is a world with heat and cold and wind and bugs and disease and storms. And you're going to need more than that. And, And God makes it for these people who just disobeyed. Because he's good. But what else is there? All right, think about this. Uh, He makes garments of skins for them, which just inherently has to mean what? Animals died. And we've got to be careful here because it's it's been tempting for people as they look at this scripture, especially with New Testament eyes, to go, aha, this must be the first sacrifice. Sin entered the world and animals are killed, the first sacrifice. The vocabulary is really not the vocabulary of sacrifice. That's not how it's presented in the text. But just by the nature of the case, what do you have? As soon as sin entered the world, and the, the, the known presence of God manifests himself, blood is shed. Blood is shed. And it's the blood of the innocent. Not to insult your intelligence, but the animals did not disobey God. The people disobeyed God. And and to press the point a bit, the innocent are uncovered, unclothed, to cover the guilty. To clothe the guilty. Does that remind you of anything? That you know from all eternity... The second person of the Trinity had no body. He had no flesh. But in the fullness of time, God the Son became man. Real, physical, fleshly man. And at the end of his life, he's on a cross dying. And what is he wearing? And again, this is where we're having to over, overcome the images that we've seen most of our lives. Because for most of our lives, 
I'd say almost without exception, we've seen the image of a man with something on. But a Roman crucifixion, especially when the account says all his garments were taken from him, he is on the cross unclothed. And one church father actually said this, and I'm really, I'm just, I'm quoting this not so much for the theology of it, but just for the impression of it. But one church father said this, that when it went dark during the crucifixion, that was the sun, S-U-N, covering his eyes as his creator is unclothed. Why is it theologically important that the God-man, enfleshed, is on the cross with no clothes on? Because the New Testament presents him as the last Adam. The one who comes to do what the first Adam should have and did not. The first Adam acted for you and me. He represented you and me. And of course, when you hear that and that he blew it, then you want to say, well, I didn't ask him to act for me. I didn't vote for him to act for for me. That's true, but he did. And here's the theological reality. If it's unfair for him to act for me, then it's unfair for someone else to act for me. And I'm banking on someone else acting for me. Jesus was unclothed with clothes, naked, and covered with guilt and shame. It actually says in Hebrews chapter 12 that when he was on the cross, he hated it. He hated the shame because he had no shame and nothing about his life brought shame until everything that's wrong with his people stuck to him. And he hated the shame, unclothed with a tunic, clothed with the sin and the guilt and the shame of his people, and it's paid for. And what does God do with his clothes? I don't mean the tunic, the garment. I'm talking about what about that perfect, seamless, flawless, airtight, beautiful life, beautiful life. The New Testament says if you trust in Jesus, if you just take God at his word that Jesus, you can heal me and save me and rescue me, that God clothes you in Jesus' righteousness. That God clothes you in this righteousness, in this beauty, in this goodness that is not naturally ours. I heard one theologian say this. He said there's three things that uh, God looks at and says, wow. The first one is himself. And that's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's because God loves what is true and good and beautiful, and he is the ultimate true source of all that's true and good and beautiful, so God takes delight in himself When he sees himself, he says, wow. The second one that God looks at and says, wow, is his incarnate son. That, son, you are what Adam should have been. That you are all the righteousness of who I am as a man. You're what a human being should look like. You're what an Israelite should look like. That God the Father looks at his son and says, wow. But this theologian said this, there's a third person that God looks at and says, wow. And that's anybody who trusts in Jesus.
because the righteousness and beauty of his son, the God-man, is wrapped around the most frail, prone to sin, prone to messing everything up sinner. He wraps it around that sinner and sees his son's glory and says, wow. And you know, if, if that is true, and the New Testament says that is true, that's a game changer. And what, what that might look like is that for some of us, whether this is you sitting in quiet or you looking in the mirror or you at the red light or whatever, actually saying to yourself, you're not naked. And you don't have to act like that anymore. You know, that's the thing in the Bible is that something can be true and you can either live out of it being true or you can act like it's not even true. A husband and a wife are one flesh. They don't like rise to the occasion of becoming one flesh. You just are one flesh when you're married. You can live out of that or you can live at odds with that and live like two individuals. But you're still one flesh. You're just ignoring it. And it's the same with being clothed with the clothing that God gives to people. You know, we can live like that's not true. And so we're just wearing ourselves out to get everybody to like me or my house to be perfect or to be the prettiest person in the room or the funniest person in the room or the omnicompetent person in my office. And it's wearing you out and it's wearing everyone out. And at the end of the day, you know I don't feel clothed. Or we could actually take stock of our lives before God and say, if I am in your son, I'm clothed. And as you look at me with your perfect holy eyes, I don't have to be ashamed anymore. Let me end with this. Uh, five years ago, I got to take some sabbatical time, and I started, started my uh, sabbatical in a monastery. And I spent all day getting from uh, Waccamaw Circle to uh, a Trappist monastery in Oregon. And I found out a lot about, I didn't know much about monks, haven't hung out much with monks. And these are Trappist monks, they're hardcore. Like even by monk standards, they're hardcore. And they wear this outfit that looks like the, you know, what you picture, the hood and the long cloak and everything. But I noticed that their sleeves are very long. Anytime you'd see a monk handling something or maybe somebody going up during a prayer service to read something, they'd have to like do that to get, to get their sleeves to hike down. And after a few days of watching that, I thought, just go to a tailor. I, I alter the design or something. Shouldn't you all have figured that out after a thousand years of Cistercian monks? But I found out what the deal is, is that their outfit is in the shape of a cross. And when you die, you're buried in it. When you die, you're buried in the image of the cross. And you and I both know, whatever they put on us at the end, if, if anything... That won't fix us. But understand the imagery. Is that people like you and me can come to our end and know 
that when I open my eyes, whether that's after a car wreck or Alzheimer's or whatever, that when I open my eyes, I will be in the presence of the one to whom we give account, before whom everything is naked and exposed, and I am beautifully clothed. And that starts now, when you trust in Jesus. That sounds like good news to me. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, please drive this deep down in our hearts that the clothing we need for our shame can only come from you and that it comes from your Son. Would you grant that to us in his name? Amen.